I think if if think if you're not motivated today, that's not a really big deal because today's not going to last very much longer. And what are you going to be like tomorrow? So the first question I would have is what's what's the nature of your motivation? Is it are you having a bad day? Are you distracted thinking about something else? Are you thinking about you know your daughter's surgery tomorrow? Are you thinking about the weekend and the plans you have? Like what's really going on there? Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you will find and apply God's wisdom to your work. I'm Dr. Chip Roper, and I'm joined by Ken Kennard and Sarah Evers. We aim to inspire, challenge, and equip you to follow Jesus in the vocational dimension of your life. As we begin this episode, I want to thank our generous donors who make this podcast possible. We are grateful for your support. VOCA funders sign up to change lives by changing work. And if you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, invest in VOCA. Just go to vocacenter.org give and join us today. Alrighty guys, so it's, um, we're recording this in the middle of April and it's going to be 90 degrees today in New York, Woo! which we think is good. At least my wife thinks it's good because it means we're winning the weather contest. So our, it's only going to be 65 in LA. And so that where our da- one of our daughters lives. So we think we're just proving to her that it's actually better here. And it's <laughs> even warmer. It's even warmer than Anna Maria Island, where our friend David Ridley spends a lot of his time in Florida. So Audrey is just feeling like we just won the weather contest. So Sarah, you're a competitor. I wonder how you're feeling about the weather contest. Uh, so I admire and respect and give her props for that. Uh, on the other hand, when I think about winning the weather, I think... San Diego wins every day of every year because they are that band of temperature that I thrive in. So it's going to be in the high 80s here, and it makes me want to cry. Um, What's it going to be in San Diego today? Uh, probably pure perfection, paradise. <laughs> well, we can find out. I mean, we don't have to wonder. We're all we don't have to wonder. Screens. But for me, we get, we get morning sun, which I love. I love that bright burst of sunlight. But it also means it bakes in my, uh, the room I'm using as an office. And, um, and I have a very narrow band of preferred temperatures. So it's a little too warm for me. The 90s generally are too warm for me. So are the 80s. All right. So today in San Diego, it's, uh, it's currently 51 degrees. And it's only going up to 63 Okay, so 63 is the low end of my preferred band of temperatures. Yeah, I'm so you're going to stick with it. You're going to stick with the San 70s. Diego thing. 60s and 70s. So let's, you so know, when are you, you going to open our San Diego office? <laughs> uh, yeah, put me on that first. Put me on that list to, to do that first. Well, I thought it was such a mom move to even invent the weather contest. I mean, my mom wanted us to stay in <laughs> California and we announced mm. that we were moving to Maryland in 1999. And the competition was on right there. Like ever since 1999, my mom has been saying, so I've been checking the weather. And, uh, you know, it looks like it's going to be 33 <laughs> where you are, but it's 79 where we are. And it's like this, this comes out of nowhere. Like I didn't ask for a weather report. Like what is this? Well, it reminds me of our new, our new coaching program. It's, it's, it's exclusively for mothers, and it's about how to overcome <laughs> your passive-aggressive weather tendencies. <laughs> we do a 360 with your whole family, and uh, we provide some feedback. Oh, my. 
Well, we and then we have a whole remedial program of like limiting your access to weather yeah. apps. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's be honest. Americans are weather obsessed because uh, more than most people around the world, we love to control our environment. So we need to know what the temperature is so we can outside so we can adjust inside. Um, and whoo I sure do like being an American in that way. <laughs> yeah, but but Sarah, but Sarah, most of us are either married or have someone that we would be in the car with. And the question I have is, why is it that they allow the person on the right side of the car to make their own adjustments to the temperature? I want it to be 72 degrees. And the person on the other side of the car says, no, I want it to be 78 degrees. As if they were like in two different cars, but there's only, <laughs> there's only really six inches between the people. Don't, don't they know that the air just kind of circulates? I don't, I don't get this. Ken, it's, I like to choose my air that flows at me, what that temperature mm. is. I don't want that 78 degree heat because my perfect temperature in the car is 71. <laughs> and I didn't or you know. Just push, you just push the San Diego setting. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's radical customization. <sighs> San Diego, I love you. <laughs> Toxic mm. individuality. Anyway. <laughs> Wow. Well, it's all about happiness, and that leads us into our topic today. So um, we are starting to unpack our annual research on dilemmas people are facing at work, and we're going to be counting them down over the next few episodes of the Resilient Faith at Work podcast. And we're going to do the top six, so we're going to start with number six today. And so uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit about what the dilemma is, what we found in our research, and then Sarah and Ken and I are going to unpack that a little bit in terms of what it's saying about people's lived experience at work and how to overcome this dilemma if it's something you or your friends are familiar with. So number six dilemma is not enjoying or feeling motivated in the work I do. It's a dilemma would mean what to do with the fact that I don't feel motivated or enjoy the work I'm doing. And 19% of the people that took our survey said this. Uh, it was higher for younger workers than it was for older workers. And um, it was also number three for women, and, and as opposed to uh, further down the list for men, uh, so, which is interesting. And as we compared it to what we found in 2022, um, this, this topic did not trend in 2022. Instead, uh, it, was, it was eclipsed by a lot of people saying, I'm I'm struggling with whether or not I should quit my job. And um, so we think there's a connection here to the great resignation and what some people are calling the great remorse uh, that over like started once, once we started to come out of the 2020 recession, the COVID recession, which really the hiring started to increase by the summer and just steadily increased. Uh, through the rest of 2020 and forward, people started to quit their jobs, and it was called the Great Resignation. And at times, four, four million people were quitting their jobs every month, voluntarily quitting their jobs, and that went on for at least 20 months. And so over a quarter of the U.S. workforce changed jobs voluntarily, so you got a lot of people changing jobs. And uh, Forbes did a little study and found that 80% of them wish they hadn't hadn't taken the new job they taken. So it's, you know, it's buyer's remorse employment style. And um, so it's, it's, um, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that people move jobs and they're still unhappy. And now they're kind of facing that. Ken and Sarah, I wonder 
I wonder how you relate to that, if you could relate to that personally, and I also wonder if you're seeing that in your in your client work. Yeah, I, I was really um, interested in that comment that the results were higher for younger workers. And I think all of us have been younger workers. What do you know about the work that younger people have? It's an important point, you know, that you don't get to be an older worker unless you were a younger worker. <laughs> exactly. But right. <laughs> so. Uh, so, okay, Captain Obvious, right? Thanks for, thanks for <laughs> calling me out on that. But here, here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going with it. When, when we were younger workers, did we have the most enjoyable and the most fulfilling job at the company? Or no. did we have to do sort of the, maybe the more menial work, maybe the more routine work, maybe the work that the upper echelon of the company didn't really want to do, or maybe they were over now, now overqualified for. I think that's more of a description, right, of young workers. And <clears throat> uh, I want to say a couple things about it. First of all, when I coach younger workers, they sometimes tell me, I don't like my job. I can't even stand this company. It's a toxic work environment. Why? Well, they're giving me the low-level work to do. Well, and I said, well, you know what? That's not a sign of a toxic work environment. That's the sign of a work environment. Like, that's what work looks like when you're young. You might have to suck it up and do some of the jobs that are maybe a little bit more routine, a little more, more, you know, not as high profile, not as maybe not as fun. Should you quit your job just because it's not fun? Um, and I actually had some personal experience with this. When I was a young manager, I had an intern come in and he was sort of working his way up through the company. And I, I he didn't have much experience. He didn't even know the software. What could I give him to do? So I gave him some just what you would have done, gave him some simple menial tasks and he did them for a week or two and he quickly lost motivation and he quit before it even got interesting. And I think both of us learned something from that. Um, he learned that even when he goes to the next job, he's going to have to do some of the entry level work. Big surprise. But what I learned as a manager, which just took me a while to, to sort of figure this out, is I did not properly give him a vision for his career direction. I did not properly say, look, I understand this is menial work. I'm not going to try to tell you this is fantastic work, right? But I'm giving it to you for a reason. And here's how it's going to parlay into work that is more fulfilling or meaningful or interesting, or that's going to leverage other abilities that you have. And because I failed to do that, he lost and I lost. And I, I kind of felt like it was a missed opportunity for, for what could have been a better long-term relationship. So you're adding, you're, part of what you're saying is a little bit of, you know, God's wisdom for your work is suck it up, buttercup. But <laughs> that's not really enough. You're acknowledging that's not really enough. And there has to be more because it's not, it's not, the message isn't really just pay your dues kind of thing. It's, it's bigger than that. Well, paying your dues, I, I think that paying your dues is all well and good as long as your dues buy you something. What do you get for it? And if you don't right. have any clue of any hope of like this leveraging into something or for any forward direction in the company or if like, like, especially if you're young, you don't have enough experience to know that this is going to work out well. So you're just like, you don't see it, you know, and, and it's really the manager's job, I think, to help with that. Maybe not do all of that work, but I think there's a job that a man, I as a manager could have and should have done which is to acknowledge that it was meaningful or menial and also show that it's meaningful. Like this is going to build to something. This is a future for you, but you do have to kind of stick with it and learn the software and put in your time and get to know the culture. So yeah, that, that's what I was learning from it. Well, it's interesting, Ken, because um, it takes 
three to six months to feel like you're getting somewhere in an organization. It can take three to 12 months until a new hire feels like they're up to speed in their new job. And that takes patience to feel like a novice or to feel um, like, you know, you don't have all the answers or you don't know how all the systems work. And when we lose sight of the end goal or when we become impatient with the process, it can lead us to cut things too short. Uh, about 30% of new hires quit within 90 days. It's a really high churn. And I wonder if part of it is because like you highlighted, maybe organizations haven't set a long enough timeline to help people have patience in the process. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a really good book about quitting called The Dip by Seth Godin. It's a quick read. And that's exactly what he says, Sarah. He says that people... Every, you don't start new things without some sense of positive expectation, right? You start mm -hmm. a new job, you think it's going to be good. And then you inevitably hit some kind of dip where you're like, oh, this sucks. You know? <laughs> and, and he says, that's when people quit. Yeah. And most of the time, they should stay because by going through the dip and adapting and finding ways to add value, even in a challenging space, um, that's where you get to be really impactful and, and highly productive. And so people are short-circuiting that process of adaptation, really, and growth, and they're never growing. Um, it's interesting, you know, in, in, the, in thinking about this pattern, the, the get out quickly, that part of the challenge is we can. Yes. And, mobility. And we have mobility, and that's economically related. So we've had v exceptionally high mobility over the last two years, two, three years. Um, but I think of somebody like in scripture, like Joseph in the Old Testament, who actually didn't have any mobility. He was just kind of stuck because he was sold as a slave by his loving brothers. And, um, and he was, you know, he worked in this, this Egyptian aristocrat's house. But he just, he, he, and then he was thrown in prison because he was falsely accused. It's a, it's a, Sounds like a bad story, but he he did this. Like he figured out how to find ways to thrive where he was and to add value where he was, and um, and it always led it led to eventually to amazing opportunities for promotion and impact and that kind of thing. And you know, as I've interviewed entrepreneurs in some of my teaching, a number of them that's really how they got where they are. They would say that they they just showed up and they volunteered for the things that nobody else wanted. It was kind of the opposite of saying I'm bored or I don't like this. They found that they volunteered for the things that nobody else wanted to do. They learned the business, they learned the industry, they learned how to do it and they ascended and uh, they ascended. Yeah, and doesn't the dip work both ways, Chip? I mean, Seth talks about it from the worker's point of view, but doesn't it also work from the employer's point of view? I was reflecting on my wife's job when she was new at a company in the first three months. Um, it wasn't just that she was learning the company. The company was also learning her. And I asked her at one at one point, I said, you know, have have they uncovered your writing skills? Are they I noticed that you're not talking a lot about it. Like, why, why aren't they doing that? And they actually gave her a test uh, situation where she could write for this particular product. And they were so impressed. And it hadn't been part of what they really wanted at first. But once they realized how good she was, they actually started changing her job description to include more writing. 
and less of some of the other things that really she wasn't as good at anyway and didn't like as much. And so I, I think that what I learned from that is the company is also in a dip. They're figuring out the employee and they're trying to figure out, okay, we thought we knew who this person was when we interviewed them and saw their resume, but now that they're actually here, like how do they best thrive? Where can we make the best use of them? Where's the value of having this person on the team? And is there any adjustment we can make to, to really make that a fulfilling job for them, not just put them in the box we thought they should have been in six months ago? You know, those three phases you guys have talked about, um, I've, I've heard those talked about in terms of the first stage being the, the honeymoon period, right? Everyone's all optimistic and excited. Everything's all great. Then you move into phase two. That's the here it comes stage where it gets hard. Expectations aren't met or progress isn't going as fast or just the, the newness and excitement of it wears off and we begin to see the everyday work of it. And then that final stage being called the hallelujah stage, like, woo, I figured it out. Um, I'm soaring or I know what I need to do to make progress. And having that framework in mind, the honeymoon, the here it comes and the hallelujah, I think that's a really good framework to keep in mind when you make a transition, whether it's a new job or a move or I mean, any kind of transition it, it fits for. And it helps give context and help give hope as you're moving through it. That, that here it comes stage is, is not a fun place to be when things don't really fit well and, and it hasn't gone the way you may have expected. Uh, but knowing that good is coming or expertise is coming or mastery is coming or, you know, that good is coming helps us stay in there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a sense of hope. And part of the deal with Joseph was God was with him. I mean, that's what kept mm. being said over and over again. And if it, it, some of this really depends on how we frame our work. And is it an individual sport that we're solely on our own to figure all this out? We've got to make it happen. We've got to find the right job. Um, and if this job's bad, then I just need to go find another one. Or is it is it is God in in the mix here? And you know, if if it's just me, then it's all hors and it's it's all horizontal. It's like one dimensional. But if it if I bring God into it, it becomes like this three dimensional triangle and I can I can wait I can serve the people around me I can um, find the things about the work that I do enjoy and focus be grateful for the practice gratitude for them like there's all these other things that can start to happen when we start to filter this whole thing when it went with God and with a Godward direction and spiritual practices like a prayer and scripture reflection and it doesn't mean it's all easy or good actually it just means that it's we're putting a, a another another stop in the in the in the or another component or piece in the flow of how we do this that change can change our perspective so i, I don't think we're and we're not saying you shouldn't you should never leave a job we're just saying that there is a, a bit of a hair trigger for some folks that seem to be like this isn't fun i'm out of here yeah, I think when we anchor our motivation in a posture of worship, it, it helps us sort of expand our view of what this work is for. Um, and when we see it as an act of worship before the Lord, it, um, it, it transforms the, the, the doldrums and the repetition into something that becomes a, a worshipful activity. And it, and it makes me think of Brother Lawrence and his book, uh, practicing the presence of God. I mean, in, in the book, it's a, a monk from the 1600s, and he talks about how his job at the monastery was to peel potatoes, mounds and mounds 
of mind-numbing potato peeling. But he looked at each potato to peel as an opportunity to connect with the Lord, to, to peel each potato for the glory of God. And that's, that mindset shift has really challenged me when work gets hard to think about how do I do this, stay in here, stay present, stay with excellence, and do this for the glory of God. Yeah, that's that's good. And it strikes me that <clears throat> young workers are not the only ones that are dealing with this, right? It, it, every Everyone at, at any life stage can be not enjoying their job or not feeling motivated to do the work. And it makes me wonder, like, uh, for those older people that have more experience, maybe some more uh, credibility, maybe some more autonomy, maybe they've, they're doing the more interesting work, and yet they're not enjoying it or not feeling motivated. You know, studies show that most, the, the biggest reason that people are wanting to leave their job is the relationship with their manager, right? It's, it's that they feel like I'm not being led well, or I'm not known, or I'm not cared for. The person managing me just I, I just considers me a number, a cog in the wheel. No one cares if I'm here or not. They just need the numbers to be up or whatever. And <clears throat> there again, I think there's a there's a double sided coin. If you're the employee or if you're the employer, uh, a response to that to to because work. Let, let's face it, work is hard. <laughs> it's never it's never going to be this side of of the fall. Never going to be as easy and fun and productive as we might want it to be. Right. And yet, it doesn't have to be uh, the doldrums in which there's no reason that I should feel good about this job. There's no reason I'm even being known or heard or seen in this. Yeah, it might even be helpful for us to just to separate these two for a minute. Like, there's the enjoying my job, and then there's motivation, and they're, and they they both could be very temperamental. But if I don't enjoy my job. For some reason, for me, it just brings up this idea, well, I've been doing this for a while and I just have no joy in it. Um, whereas motivation is more of a day-to-day -day, day -day thing that, you know, some days I'm motivated and some days I'm not. How do you guys deal with the, maybe personally and or client-wise, like, what do you think? How do you deal with the, no, I'm not motivated today? Well, if, but I think if, if, think if you're not motivated today, that's not a really big deal because today's not going to last very much longer. And what are you going to be like tomorrow? So the first question I would have is, what's, what's the nature of your motivation? Is it, is it, are you having a bad day? Are you distracted thinking about something else? Are you thinking about, you know, your daughter's surgery tomorrow? Are you thinking about the weekend and the plans you have? Like, what's, what's really going on there? I'm not that concerned, actually, about a motivated, unmotivated day as much as like, okay, is this like, hey, I've been doing this for the last three months and I've really lost my motivation and I'm, I, you know, we talked about burnout before. Burnout has a big has a big effect on your motivation for sure. That's kind of part of the definition of burnout. But even if it hasn't gotten to the burnout stage, if you find yourself just going through the motions, I remember I had a job where I wasn't motivated to do it. And it, I was all summer changing the codes of computer documents for the English department and copying and pasting and copying and pasting. And, you know, I, I, I managed to find... Uh, some some joy in it and be, by competing with myself to see how fast I could go and <laughs> how I could optimize it. I saw it as a challenge. But after I had solved that challenge in the second month and the third month, I have to admit, like my motivation just tanked. Now, looking back, that challenge actually served me well because I didn't know it at the time, but I was going to be later doing some work in HTML where spotting those codes, being able to see them and work with them and just having the visual acuity trained on certain things really came in handy. 
Uh, so it, it, I felt like that that challenge was actually good. But I, I feel like there's, there, you know, if, if you're not motivated at work and it's more of a chronic thing, then we need to start looking at, okay, is it me? Is it the job? Is it the job situation? Go, I guess Ken. I, go ahead, sir. Well, you, Ken, you didn't know that that was going to serve you well. At the no. time, you just had to endure and go through it. Um, and that makes me think that we we never know how God is going to use our diligent, obedient work. When we show up and do what is asked of us, even if we don't know how it shows, we, we don't know what's going to happen. And I think this this point of doing what's asked of us was illustrated really well in a classic film from 1984 called The Karate Kid. So in this movie, Daniel was a bullied teen who wanted to turn the tables and bully his bullies. And he sought out Mr. Miyagi to be his mentor to teach him how to do karate, karateize uh, everybody. Um, and eventually Daniel got really frustrated because Mr. Miyagi had him doing chores like painting a fence and waxing a floor and washing a car. But what we come to learn is that Mr. Miyagi disguised the repetition to ingrain techniques and muscle memory um, and strengthen Daniel's muscles. And that whole concept is called disguised repetition, where we learn things through this repetition. And we don't know what God has for us in the future. And so our current monotonous task might be this disguised repetition to train us for what's coming in the future. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity for us to be diligent, to be obedient, to persevere, and to trust that God is good and gracious and kind, and that whether it's teaching me a professional skill, a leadership technique, or a character trait, God is going to use this in some way to, to develop me. And it is really, I mean, uh, are, uh, for those of out there listening, it's it, all of you come to this from a different place. So there's, you know, you could be starting out, you could be in a new job and thinking this isn't, I made a wrong choice. Or you could be in the same job that you've been doing for 20 years and just really tired of it. And we've worked with people all across that continuum. And I think one of the things we do and we create space for um, is, is to process this enough mm -hmm. to figure out step back from what's going on. I just had a conversation with a client uh, a week ago who was like, I think I want to get out of here, but I'm talking to you first. And I was like, wonderful. Because so many times people talk to us after they, that's just, after they do the stupid thing, you know, they talk to us and then they want us to help them. The get major life the altering thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like they already did it. They already pulled the ripcord or rage quitting or whatever they did. So this is, this was great. So we had a pro you know, we were talking about it before he made a decision. We were talking about it to help him make a decision. And, um, and, and, and he's kind of basically developing credentials in a new career. And so there's, there's no reason to change quickly, but he still might change. And I don't know what you guys see in your practice, but it's a lot, a lot of times when people want to change, it's that they think that they just assume that there's something better or sometimes they assume nothing would be better. And it's rarely the case and when you actually give them space to really think carefully and pursue some wisdom about it and think about where they are and where God has them, where they, they believe God wants them to go in their career. It's, they almost always slow down. And, um, so, so I think, I think that that's, there's just, there, we, 
we all, whether you use a coach at Voca or somewhere else, or you just use your friends or your, your grandmom, you need to, you, you need to have somebody that helps you create space to get out of the emotions a little bit. And, and, you know, the scripture calls it using a multitude of counselors, but you, you really need to process this with people. And for some strange reason, I don't know what this is actually, but this is becoming more and more countercultural. There's some hmm. research by Barna that indicates that a majority of people, 56%, view their quest for a good job as a completely private and individual thing that they don't talk to anybody about. Yeah, and, and it's not just find one, like you said, Chip, not just finding one counselor, but uh, you know, the proverb says, with, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Uh, I was talking to a young man who uh, was having a horrible time with his the relationship with his parents, and they were not giving him much wise counsel. And he went out and sought it from other people, uh, a pastor, a counselor. You know, he had a therapist. He had some friends that he was talking to. And so when I asked him, you know, you're making some pretty big life decisions right now. Um, who's helping you? And he rattled off this list of four or five folks. I thought, now there is a wise young man. He's not successful in life yet, but he's already put in place um, that key element of success, which is to get multiple points of view from people who know more and have been there and can give some perspective. And I, I just think that's I, I think that's definitely the way to go, especially as the, the kind of decision ramps up to make, like you said, Sarah, a major life decision. Yeah, we need those other points of view. So I, I have my personal board of directors, group of women or men that I women and men that I turn to for input to share what's happening when I need an outside perspective. Because my view is so narrow and I'm so in it. Sometimes I can't see the big picture. I can't see God at work around me. I can't see anything uh, other than my angst. And so these people really help lift my eyes to see that maybe things aren't as bad as I think they are, or maybe they're worse than I think they are. Um, and so it just helps me have more information to make a, 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 re, a seasoned decision. And Chip, I was really compelled by something you said about um, the rage quitting and how glad you were that client talked with you first because it, it created that pause where we can take a deep breath and it creates room for the Holy Spirit to work before we react versus responding to different situations. Well, it sounds like your personal board of directors is that sort of space for you. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more about that. Like, uh, how often do you talk to them? How did you find them? Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't convene them all together like a corporate board of directors. Uh, but that's I, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I do. I, I do have a handful of of people that have proved themselves to be for me, um, and uh, have my best interests in mind. And they're from different seasons of my life, so they know me in different contexts. Um, and and when I feel stuck. Um, I'll, I'll text a couple of them to see if we can get on a call or we'll just have a text conversation about things. Um, and I'll ask for their input and, um, you know, I let them know ahead of time what I need. I just need you to listen and give me feedback or I need you to push holes in what I'm saying. And when I, when I'm able to queue up what I need from them, it's even better, right? Rather than me just blabbing on about stuff, uh, for me to ask them for their input, uh, it helps them listen with a different ear. That's really good. I like what you're saying there, too, because I think um, we tend to have to push people to ask for help of any kind. You know, we see this because we want them to go and in almost any coaching engagement that you're going to do with us, we're going to we're going to ask you who else you should be talking to to get 
intel and counsel, whether it's career change or not, uh, there's always people involved. And so people are resistant to that. And then I, I think even when they do do it, sometimes they make it hard for people to help them because they don't have a clear question yes. or agenda item and yes. or they or it ends up in a you know verbal vomit fest of just spewing a lot of stuff and you know if you're an extrovert you're actually just using that person to process out loud but you're not actually getting their counsel cuz there's you're chewing up all the air in the conversation so i'm getting some best practices chip uh, from the from this conversation one is tell them what you need from them number 2 is don't try to make it a big ordeal like a corporate board. Everyone has to get together a scheduling nightmare. It'll never happen very frequently. Um, don't just use up all the oxygen in the room and spew and vomit. Use them in, in a different way where somehow you can gain from their expertise. Maybe you're going to have to let them do some talking is what I'm hearing. Um, <clears throat> any other best practices here to, to make use? I mean, the one other thing I would add is, is that you talked about an individual culture and how that we think this is a solo sport and it's all up to us there's a mind shift right there that you might need to make yeah. to say, look, um, my life is not actually all about me and uh, it's not all up to me how this goes. I'm, I could be humble. I could be teachable. I could be recognizing that I see, don't see everything. I might have some unconscious bias or I might have some weaknesses or blind spots. I can admit that. It's okay. It's actually healthy to admit that and open myself up to other people's perspective. Anything else that you guys would add to, to, to make this work better? Definitely. I would say you yourself be willing to hear feedback that you might not like. And rather than get Expect defensive it. and push, right? Rather than get defensive and push back against it, receive it and think about it, consider it. You might not agree with what they're saying, but we can get so defensive that we won't even allow an idea that we haven't already thought about or an idea that we don't like. We won't let it in. So there's some, so my bet, my encouragement is be open to feedback you might not want to hear. I, I think, yeah, but that's, that's really good. And it's important because it, what's the point in listening if you're not open to it? Um, right. I, I think dialing, going all the way back sort of to the beginning of the best practices, don't make major decisions about your job without talking to somebody. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, just make it a rule um, that you're not going to, you're not going to make unprocessed moves in your career that you're, Chances of you doing something foolish are really high when you do that, I think. Yeah. Um, so nobody should be surprised about significant decisions in your life, right? The people who are invested in you, I don't Well, I don't the people that are surprised. in the inside circle. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Yeah, I'm thinking of a person who um, was considering a promotion and applied for it. And in talking to his friends about it, he realized he really didn't want that promotion. <laughs> and he, he didn't want that level of responsibility. It was not a good fit for his life situation. And you might think, oh, it's a promotion. How exciting. You'd get more pay, more responsibility. But I don't think that's always necessarily true. And what he discovered for himself is that he wasn't all in on that promotion. And after processing it, he let his hiring manager know that. And they ended up hiring someone else. And he was actually quite relieved that the company found someone else that was better suited and was more willing to take it. So uh, that processing really helped in that situation too, not just a major life you know, decision like quitting or something. Yeah, and I, I was just want to add, I don't know if this is the best practice or not. It's more of a personal reflection. It's that it takes time usually to figure out why you're not enjoying or motivated in your work. It's, it's not, because like I think Ken, you said it earlier, there could be a host of reasons. It, it actually might not have anything to do with your work. 
Like it might have to be, it might be your commute, you know, it might be something else going on in your life that's just depleting sort of the, what's going on. I, you know, I was, um, in my, one of my former lives, I have several of them. Um, when I was a pastor, I would go through seasons where I didn't feel motivated. Um, which since I was a pastor was of course a sin. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I, I, and I, it took a while to and, and some work uh, with the coach to really figure out why, what are the kind of common factors in those seasons when I was not motivated. And some of them were, like one of them was conflict. Like I wasn't motivated when I was tolerating and sometimes creating, I quite often created the conflict, which doesn't surprise you guys at all, but I was tolerating unresolved conflict. So that had nothing to do with the job. That was me. And that was my behavior, and that really was sin. Uh, and it can be dealt with, it can be forgiven, it can be processed, you can wreck, you know, and you move forward. So that, it didn't have anything to do with the job. There's another pattern was that when, there, when we had something, some challenging strategic thing that we needed to get our heads around and move forward together, I was very, very, very motivated. And when we were in seasons of stasis, um, where where the role shifted into more like you're just taking care of people, kind of chaplain types of things. It was, I was, I wasn't motivated. You know, Ken, I know you and I even, you've done some coaching with me on this, that I'm a builder, that's what you call me. And I just think when I'm building, I'm motivated. And when I can't build, I'm not. And so that's something that took a long time to learn. And I don't even think it means I need to build all the time. No, but it does. It just gives that, me that a sense awareness. of, yeah. Well, awareness says, okay, well, this is how I'm gonna kind of have my best motivation can't be doing that all the time necessarily that's not realistic and but it, i'm just saying so when somebody just says i'm not happy or motivated in my work i think what kind of work have you done to figure out what's really behind that and mm -hmm. you know i know you guys we see this sometimes it's like it is nakedly obvious why a person is not motivated in the work they're doing like the the like off the chart extrovert who is a back office accountant like you should be yeah. selling accounting software. Like, there's no way you're going to feel excited about this job. Like, sometimes it's, I've had several of those actually in my client roster over the years. So it's real. I don't know what it is about accounting. But um, so that yeah. sometimes it's really obvious, but sometimes it's not. And it just takes some work to figure out what's really going on. Yeah, well, good for you for doing the work, first of all, to, to get to the point where you have that awareness. And now every time you feel unmotivated for a season, you have something you can check. It may not be true for now, but what what have I built lately? Am I in a building mode? If not, are, is there anything I could be building? And maybe if the answer is you can't build at work right now because that's an inappropriate season, then okay, what can I build on the weekends? You know, get let's mm -hmm. get out my tools. You know, maybe there's something I can do to, to scratch that itch. I had a, There's actually a new reason that people are not motivated at work <clears throat> because of the pandemic. And one of my clients this week just discovered it after three months of coaching, I don't take responsibility for that, but she did discover, she seemed to be doing okay in the job, but after three months, uh, our most recent coaching session, she said, you know what I've discovered about myself is I'm really not cut out for 100% remote work. It's not working for me. And my next yeah. job, I thought I was gonna stay with this company, but every time I ask them about the future here, they say, this is 100% remote workforce and we're only gonna do remote work. You're never gonna see your, your fellow employees or your boss face to face. Don't expect that. And she just was like, I'm not that kind of person that can just stay in this room 100% of the time and thrive in my work. 
Um, and, and through through some assessment and through some thinking and, and you know, she came to that, that realization. She's done some of that introspection. I wonder if our listeners would be wise to do some of that as well if, if they're struggling to figure out why, why is it that I'm not feeling motivated? Right. Well, this is good. I, I have one final thought I think I, I want to wrap up with, and it's from Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book. So you guys can all ch chip into my crowdfunded psychotherapy that Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. Mr. Melancholy. Um, yeah. No, um, I think there's actually a lot of pretty cool wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And uh, there's a phrase, and it's, uh, it's in chapter 3. It says, let everybody eat, uh, eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Because this is a gift of God. Mm. And, you know, one, one way to look at that is somebody saying, well, I'm not finding satisfaction in my to toil, so this must not be the job God wants me to do, or... God's absent. He's off the job. He, like he's off his job. Like what's going on? Um, but I wonder what it might look like to flip it around a little bit and think of it almost like a prayer. To say, well, God offers us this gift of of finding some satisfaction in our work, and we start to pray. Oh, God, I'm not seeing it right now. Uh, show it to me. Show me how to find the satisfaction in this work that I have to do right now. And and we kind of hold it out as a He's made a promise, and we're we're pushing Him. With respect, of course, but we're pushing him to deliver. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't he actually encourage that in the Bible, Chip? If you read the Psalms, all these all these laments and prayers. When you when you listen to David, for example, praying, what is he doing? He's pushing God. He's saying, "Hey, this isn't how it should be, and this is there's something wrong here, and I'm having to deal with this reality. You know, do something about this, right?" Uh, yeah, I, I there's think that so, sense of urgency and us. honesty. Yeah, I think of Abraham who kept pushing. Right, he's praying, save the Gideon. city for fifties. Yeah, Gideon, another one. Gideon so I wonder. And tested. I wonder if some of us need to just go right there. You know, we need to create our own work lament and pray for the gift psalm, and just keep banging on heaven's door until we find find it, find it in our day to day right now, find it in our career path. And in many of those psalms, how do they end? They end with, "Great are you, Lord." <laughs> You have right. provided, you have, uh, you know, you're worthy of praise. You are the provider and the sustainer of life and the giver of all good gifts. So somehow in that, in that prayer process, um, <clears throat> the psalmist has found something worth celebrating. Well, it's back to what Sarah said earlier about glorifying God in your work. And, you know, I think God gets glory when, when we can see his fingerprints when we can see him doing things and, Maybe this this is this is it. Like like you've we've said, sometimes work is hard. Sometimes you've got to do hard like grinding kind of work to get to the learn the skills and gain the credentials to get to the kind of work that you really want to do. And the fact that God can give you a sense of purpose and satisfaction even in that along the way is something only He can do sometimes and that's where He gets glory. Well that will wrap up this episode of Resilient Faith at Work. Thanks for joining us. Uh, next time we will unpack dilemma number five. Thanks for listening. As we close this episode, I'm gonna use the H word, help. First, help us help you. Do you wanna grow in your effectiveness as a worker and a leader? Are you wondering if you're in the right job or career? Maybe you lead a team and wonder how to make that better. Go to vocacenter.org consult for an easy scheduling link and book your appointment with one of our great coaches today. 
we are ready to help you. Second, help us help others. This podcast is brought to you by generous donors who change lives by changing work through their investment in VOCA. If you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, donate to VOCA. Go to vocacenter.org give and begin your partnership today. We'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast, where we help you build resilient faith at work. <laughs>